Welcome to Humanitou. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of this podcast series about humanness and creativity. Today, I am talking with Lucas LaRochelle, designer, artist, and founder of Queering the Map. Queering the Map is a community-generated project that essentially is a collaborative digital archive of queer experience across the world. Created in 2017, it already has collected well more than 100,000 individual stories of queer experience. Each is marked with location on an interactive global map. And there's much more to it than that, of course, so you're going to hear a lot more about that from Lucas and I as we get deeper into the storytelling and the magic of Queering the Map. We'll also talk about the importance and the transcendental powers of anonymity. And we'll talk about one of the most powerful aspects of love. We also dig into truth and fiction and what it means to acknowledge another story versus invalidating it and dismissing it as untrue or even unworthy. Along the way, among other things, I ask Lucas the impossible, impossible question. And they do their best to answer it anyway. Here is my conversation with Lucas La Rochelle. Hi, Lucas. Welcome to Humanitou. I am so glad to have you here. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I'm so happy to be here. I've also been looking forward to our conversation. You know, I've been checking out so much of the work that you do, and I love it, and I look forward to learning from you more about it. But I first want to start with something that's been on my mind as a general thing uh, in the world and in life right now. And that has been, for some reason, I've been more aware of my personal routines with some things. Maybe that's life. Maybe it's creative. You know, for example, in the morning when I get up, I go through the same stuff that, you know, I get coffee, I sit down to a journal and I spend some time handwriting. Sometimes it's 20 minutes, sometimes it's an hour. And it got me to thinking about what other people, maybe in particular creative people do as routine, whether that's morning or it's creative process or just, I don't know, does that, does that resonate with you? Do you have certain things that stoke up your day or, or get you going? Absolutely. Similarly, I've actually been starting a, a process of writing, like handwriting in the morning, which has been really helpful in terms of a practice of collecting my thoughts before the day begins. But I feel like the most important part of the routine that I've developed, especially um, with the different kinds of time constraints that quarantine has bestowed upon us um, is that I've started more frequently uh, reading in the morning, starting my the first sort of entry into my brain, not checking my emails and being split apart in 15 different directions upon, upon, um, upon waking up. Um, and I've found similarly to the way that, that journaling does that work for me, it's a way of directing um, the kinds of thoughts that I might be having during the day. I mean, I also, I, I most frequently um, slash all the time I'm reading nonfiction. I'm not a huge fiction reader, um, though I have been trying to do more of that. And so often the things that I'm reading are very directly related to the kind of work that I'm doing. So it's become a practice of, of entering, entering into the mindset that I want to soon be in, but with and through another person's thoughts that I found very grounding in the morning. It's interesting how we do, I think, align our work and, for example, those books that we're reading, because I would say that that's where I am. That comes and goes. Sometimes I feel more like reading through a series of books. And, and for me, it also has always been more on the nonfiction front. Lately, that involves creative practices, spiritual practices, the melding of all those things, things that are relevant to me and how I go about these connections through humanity and so on. And to me, that resonates as saying that the work that you're doing has passion in it for you, that you are inspired by it and that you, it's not like we're segmenting into this eight to five sort of work day. Now let me go to what I really love doing, but instead have you, do you feel like you have brought that all together into being just a way of living, a way of being? 
Absolutely. And in, in so many ways, I feel very grateful for the opportunity that the work that I do is so in line with um, my values and and beyond even my values, simply the things that I'm interested in spending time tending to. Um, simultaneously, of course, there's 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 the downside of that where my my identity is so interlinked with the kind of work that I do, which I think is is uh, can become problematic. Um, my sense of value often gets too wrapped up in, even though it's work I love to do, finding that balance between the ever-present pressure to be the neoliberal producing entrepreneurial subject, um, that the love for the work I do sometimes comes at the expense of the love that I have for myself that I need to give myself to find a sense of separation and a sense of control. Because as much as I love the work that I do and I love the work that I do and I'm so excited every day that I wake up and this is the life that I get to live. These are the thoughts that I get to have and not only the thoughts, but they're thoughts that I'm able in so many different capacities to turn into actions, be they minor or, or, or larger gestures. And also I'm always cognizant of, of, of needing to be kind to myself and understand myself outside of that outside of the things that I do, which is something I think it's a, it will be a major, it has been, and I think will continue to be a major um, uh, struggle, a major balance that I need to, to strike in, in my life. It's a practice in itself to figure out how to establish boundaries that, especially when it comes to allowing that space that we give ourselves with gentleness, kindness, love, so that we can feel uh, rested and whole and not, you know, overly taxed and burdened. And like you're saying, if we're over identifying with something and not giving that space, but you've mentioned the love you have for your work. And we are going to, of course, talk about some of those things. But if you have maybe a more general or broad way of describing what is this work that means so much to you? It's a hard question to answer in full, I find. I often ID myself as a designer and a researcher, which are two words that I feel like set up the kind of work that I do relatively well. I sometimes ID myself as an artist, though I often find myself erring more towards designer, largely because of the communications aspect. I really value design as a medium for communication that I think that there are certain things that we need to say urgently and art very often says those things urgently, but I find my way to, to express a kind of urgency um, is through design as a medium um, and specifically design that uses the internet as a medium, specifically a medium for connecting people and also posing questions in ways that are larger than inside my own internal dialogue. So that would be one way I would begin to describe the kind of work that I do. I think listening to how you answered that resonates with me because if people were to ask me, I'm like, well, I'm a writer, I'm a photographer, I'm, I'm some different things. You could say now a podcaster and so on. But I, I think that those, those are descriptors that people might feel like they can understand if I just give those simple words out. But at the heart, I think that you and I are, are, playing in the same, you know, field here of connection and questions, communication. And it's about, again, what humanity is about. So I'll use my words here being humanness and creativity. We use creative tools, skills as methods for connecting with that human uh, aspect of ourselves and others and seeing ourselves in others and allowing them to see us and to see each other. And it, it's, there's a lot more depth there than just designer or photographer, right? So I want to talk with you about one of those projects in particular, Queering the Map. You know, you and I had talked in advance of this in, in arranging this conversation. And so because of that, I'm aware that when it comes to the origin story, it comes to the, well, how did this come together and why thing, 
you know, that's something that you've had to speak on so many times. So if it's okay with you, I will give the gist of that so that we can, and you can, of course, add or correct whatever I, I say in there, but so that we can then more efficiently get to maybe the, the more hurtful things besides just that what, right? The, the, the labels, the words that identify. So you founded Queering the Map in 2017. And it's an interactive, community-generated digital project. It's, I think, essentially a collaborative online archive of not only queer experience, but specifically those experiences in relation to physical spaces. And with Queering the Map, that means they are actually being marked by individuals sharing their stories on a map, on a global map. So... I know that some of this arose for you, part of the inspiration anyway, from a book by Sarah Ahmed called Queer Phenomenology. And, and she had talked about queerness, not only as orientation related to bodies, but also to space. And what I'm curious about in that, I think more emotionally connected, deeper sense to understand and learn from you is maybe why did you personally feel like something like this this map, this interactive map uh, needed to exist in the world. And just, I, I'm guessing that there was personal experience. You know, it's not just her book that pointed you that way. That might've been a catalyst or it might've been a moment. What, it, where is this coming from within you for why this was important and is? Absolutely. I mean, that's a beautiful introduction to what Queering the Map is. I think especially the naming of Sarah Ahmed's influence her work on this project is so important to name because it is it's a relationship the the queering the map is in many ways an emotional response to that book it's theory and praxis very much coming together reading that that book queer phenomenology was a way into feeling certain feelings um providing a framework for the kinds of emotions and the kinds of thoughts that I was having about my own um, experiences of queerness as they mark a way of being and moving and feeling through the world in relationship to other people and to spaces um, more broadly. I think it, it, it really, it, it, the origin story from an emotional standpoint is, is linked to this specific tree in a park in, in Montreal or Jojage called Parc Jean Mans. And it's a tree that I uh, would bike through um, every day to and from school where I was going at the time. And it's the tree where I met someone that I would eventually fall in love with. And it's also the tree at which I had a very explosive coming out as trans non-binary. Um, and so it was a tree in an area not, you know, it's outside of sort of like dominant understandings of, of what we might consider to be queer space. It's not the village as we have in Montreal, which is the, the, the gayborhood. Um, and yet it was this space that held such explosive and multivalent and stacked experiences that oriented me in the world towards uh, my own experiences, to the experiences of of, um, of my immediate community and to the, the physical world more broadly. Um, and so as I continued this bike ride, I continued to sort of mentally plot out these other spaces that held this lingering sense of, of, of queer significance, whatever that was. I wasn't really sure what that meant. I wasn't even really sure what queer space really meant. And so many of these places, again, were these, these micro moments of relation, in, in my case, the most often. And they ranged from incredibly joyous to immensely traumatic and sort of everywhere on, on, on the scale. And ultimately, I became really fascinated with this question, with this sort of mode, line of inquiry that I was going through while simultaneously recognizing my own positionality um, as a white person, as a middle-class person, as a university-educated person, 
that the way that I might define queer space is also very much along uh, those axes also. So what might it mean to move outside of, to, to create some sort of tool that would involve multiple perspectives um, on this larger question of um, how are we experiencing space? How are we experiencing the world as queer people from many different walks of life, from many different axes of experience? Um, and I'm trained as a designer. And so those are the tools that I, that I, that I am drawn to first, visual communications and uh, uh, digital media being the things that, that, that I am drawn to most often. Um, and so that became the line of inquiry, the way of continuing that conversation that I was having within myself, um, but providing a framework um, to pose those questions uh, on a on a larger scale, or even on a scale outside of myself, I think to say larger scale, um, I could never have in, intuited or imagined or planned for um, the immensity with which clearing the map would be taken up by so many people across the world. It very much begins as as a question from myself to my more immediate community in Jojage or Montreal, and the expanse to which those those feelings have been um, inhabited, moved by, moved with so many other people whom I don't know, but whom I share an immense uh, sense of affinity through the power of, of, of identifying queerness as, as a kind of community, as a transnational community, has been an immense answer or dialogue to to that initial bike ride to those initial questions that I was posing to myself the emotions I was having I am thinking about that tree and trying to imagine let's say I also was familiar with that tree I had my own memories there I would identify as cisgender as heterosexual Okay, so I have memories there. You have memories there. That's marked on the map within this context of experience, queer experience, queer space. But, you know, in my history and, and whatever, and for those who, like me, are cisgender, are heterosexual, are any number of these other identifiers, we don't, we don't have a queering the map. We don't have a whatever the ing the map that would be. And I know it's important that querying the map exists. So what I'm trying to get to is if you can please share why it matters for that map to exist when we otherwise we being those who identify in ways that I do don't consider that for ourselves if that makes sense. If there's a special I think need right in having querying the map Whereas I just look at that tree and only think of myself. I don't think of that in the context of the larger identity that I have. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's, it's a great question. I think I would also say that there are many, many different kinds of ing the map that could exist. <laughs> there's so many, um, there's so many ways in which we experience the world, so many subject positions from which we uh, experience the world. So there are, I think there are so many possibilities of, of doing largely what is called uh, counter mapping. I would define um, querying the map as a kind of counter map that it's not, these are not the experiences that are, that dominantly shape the, um, design and infrastructure of public space, of which there are many. And broadly speaking, it's a minoritized way of, of, of existing in the world. And so it becomes important from that, that standpoint of expressing these kinds of things. I think generally speaking, in terms of a media landscape, there are not enough stories of queer and trans life and there are surely not enough stories of queer and trans life written by and for 
queer and trans people with a public that is explicitly, though I would say in the context of Queering the Map, everyone is invited. Um, everyone is invited to, to, to view the map, to participate with the map in whatever ways they feel called to. And ultimately, I think the way that, that it's inhabited is that it is really, it's a communication platform, um, a mode of, of transmitting, archiving, sharing stories um, by and for the, the, the multitudes of, of, of queer communities, queer people that have used the platform. And it's one way it's one way in. I want to, I want to go to the anonymity of this. Mm. There was a quote, uh, from a different interview in which, uh, it's, it was ruthless magazine based in the UK. And it was the author of that article who I'm going to quote here on God Singh is the name of the author. And the quote is in the case of querying the map anonymity, is the basis of our ability to become known. That line struck me as profound. And it also made me wonder how that comment, that line might have particular resonance with you and your work. And considering that you, I think, had initially intended when creating Queering the Map, had initially intended that you stay anonymous as the person behind this. Yeah. I'll stop there and let you speak to it. Absolutely. I'm so thrilled that you have read that article and that you bring that up in this conversation because Engad's piece is that to this date is one of my favorite articles written about and, and thinking with Queering the Map. I think the way that, that he thinks through what anonymity does on the platform is so powerful, especially thinking about it, contrasting it to invisibility, that it might be easy to assume that that visibility is the answer, when in many ways we know visibility, as Martine Sims, a brilliant artist, has said, representation is also a form of surveillance. What does it mean when we produce produce ourselves as subjects that are visible, how are we made visible? And what kinds of things does visibility do? And when is visibility dangerous, which for communities that are like queer communities, racialized communities are under heightened surveillance? What are the, what are the importance of anonymity now, but also cultures of anonymity previous? I mean, I think of, I think of uh, practices of cruising, the, the, the queer, practice queer and non-queer people alike, but largely adopted by queer folk of, of having anonymous sex in, in, in public spaces, that there's a, there's a history and a necessity of anonymity um, within various queer cultures as a mode of survival. That's one way of thinking about anonymity on the platform in terms of safety and the importance of that kind of safety and, 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 a, and, a, and a reference to those kinds of historical practices of anonymity or resisting or negotiating visibility. And the other way, which I think that, that Angad really gets that too, is almost the, the erotics or the, the transcendental, I think in some ways, powers of anonymity, the power of, of being one of many when so much of, uh, I mean, if I speak from my own experience, so much of my queer experience prior to coming into community is one of profound loneliness and isolation. And so this impulse towards the collective, to falling into community, to having the sort of the, the, um, the boundaries perhaps of, of self and, and and other quiver or break for a moment is something which is which is in many ways the way that I think about love. I think the most powerful aspect of love is that those moments, and they might not always be possible, right? This negotiation between being an individual and being in relation is is a dance. We can't always be in high, we need to be moving in between 
relation with ourselves in relation to others. But those moments of, 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 of the experiences of profound love that I have felt are those moments in which there is a temporary dissolve in that, in that space between myself and someone else. And I think that there is something about anonymity that, that provides or that maybe gestures or orients us towards that space of intimacy, which I think is something that in so many dominant social media platforms that really ask us to invest in ourselves, invest in ourselves as, um, as individuals, promote ourselves as individuals, as these sort of perfectly contained, marketable, branded subjects, how much of how much possibility for connection is lost through that impulse? The kinds of stories that I might share about myself in on the platform of Queering the Map are very different, and this is true for many of the stories, are very different than the ones I might come across on Twitter or or share on Instagram. They're not necessarily stories of success or painting myself in a particular way, there's a different kind of performance that's demanded of us when we enter the confines of the discrete user profile, ultimately, which there are no user profiles on Queering the Map. And so I think there's also a different, a different valence to the idea of sharing. We use the language of sharing so often in we share things on Twitter, we share them on Facebook, we share them on Instagram, we share, we share, we share. But there's a different kind of sharing that I think that happens on Querying the Map because of this, this lack of link back to this anonymity is that the gesture of sharing is absolutely one that comes from an individual impulse. I share my story on Querying the Map because I desire to express that. I, I desire to be heard in some capacity. But I think in doing so in the context of anonymity, there's a different, as I said, a different valence that is added to the concept of sharing, because it really is sharing for the collective, contributing to an archive that will span space and time and be another, be a kind of light, be a kind of uh, beacon, be a point of orientation for someone who might come across that story. It's interesting what anonymity in this case can provide. I'm, the word that comes to mind for me is credibility. So I'm thinking of this in, in a couple of ways. We're socially conditioned typically by the systems to say, if you are a credible voice, you will put your name on that voice. That goes in journalism. Typically, it goes in any comment in a community. Well, who said that? Well, if you're not willing to put your name on it, how credible can it be? You're just you know, stoking problems. But in this case, we flip that. And I think that authenticity allows, or excuse me, the, the anonymity allows for authenticity, right? Because of what you're describing. If I feel safe to be able to fully share, to get something about myself out there, and then I, I presumably, right, feel better because you were given that space to say something that you might not otherwise feel safe to say in any other way, any other platform. So the idea there that's playing in my mind is sort of um, opposites of this sense of credibility as it relates to anonymity. Absolutely. I love that way of thinking about it. And it's one of the things that I think about so often in terms of what's happening on the platform of this real reckoning with, with even the concept of truth or authenticity, as you put it. Um, and there feels to be this, I mean, there's many ways that I think about it, but the first thing that comes to mind is the queer and trans life are and have historically been cast as inauthentic, as untrue, as, as, as having a, a as, as not being as real or as valid as cis and heterosexual experiences, identities. So to play into this idea of authenticity, feels like it might follow that kind of logic. How do we prove that this is true? How do we know that this experience is, is true or valid? And a queer sort of formulation of that might say, well, it actually doesn't matter 
it's it's sort of like it's it's an orienting around the affective or the emotional. We read the stories on Queering the Map and we assume that they're true because me- most of them probably are. And many of them might also be fantastical. Many of them are in many cases speculative. They have not happened yet. They will never happen because they're about some sort of queer rereading of the Titanic. Which, uh, there is a couple of examples of Queering the Map in which that's the case which also turns towards a rich history and present of, of, of fantasy and fabulation as a mode of queer and trans world-making. Um, that truth in the archive, who decides what truth is, is, I mean, and especially in, in our contemporary moment of post-truth, is a big question. And I think part of the gesture of Queering the Map is, is of course, so many of these questions of post-truth are, are um, oriented and attributed to alt-right methodologies. But I think that there's also, there's ways that that we can use that kind of, we can use this moment of post-truth to do something other than, to imagine different kinds of worlds that we might need to live in, um, that we might turn towards the archive and not be, not be so concerned with truth. Of course, in many cases, we need a historical, a historically accurate archive because there's so much violence that's done through the erasure of, of history. So speaking of erasure of history, I've noticed you using a second name from Montreal. I am taking that to be uh, an indigenous name. Am I correct in that? Absolutely. Yes. When we talk about erasure of history, of course, that's another way that we see that. We see it in all kinds of ways throughout history. But if you can speak to, well, in any direction you want to go here, just overall what that erasure of history means to you. Now, that can mean uh, queer experience, and it also can mean from the position of the indigenous history, because you're taking care. And I noticed that on your websites that you also take care to say this is the land that we are on. It's stolen land. This is what we are on. And so you have twice now mentioned that indigenous name for Montreal. So what is the bigger picture of what that erasure means to you and where you're coming from with this? It's a great, a great question. It can be to queer experience specifically if that's where you feel most comfortable in terms of talking on it. Mm-hmm. But I am glad to have been able to make that connection of how you have also cared for and brought into this uh, in those those subtle but clear ways of how that also applies to others. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think in, in terms of the importance of naming the indigenous territory, which is uh, in Ganyangeha, the language of the Ganyangahaga people, um, is Jajage, which is uh, the land on which I live as a settler. If I am to contend with what queer experience means in relationship to this land that is not mine, then doing so in dialogue, in in naming of the many other histories that are present in a given location, especially as we're dealing with with a mapping project and contending with the colonial histories of the map as an artifact to control, demarcate, and dispossess land, then that sort of link between what queering does, why queering is important, why queer and trans histories are important, must happen alongside and in conversation with why Indigenous sovereignty is important, why Indigenous futurisms are important, why Indigenous history is urgently important. And I think I I might actually connect it back to what we were talking about before, this sort of, this gesture of what we can do by turning towards the anonymous or which I think in an internet context is often framed as the troll. There's a certain gesture that's happening in querying the map that is trolling the map itself as the map, the archive falsely claim to be bearers of objectivity 
when of course they are not. The Mercator projection map used by Google Maps, which is the API that, that querying the map is loading the map data from, is an incorrect Euro and North America centric visualization of space. So from its beginning, it is a falsified object. And this sort of, this, this part of, I think the gesture on querying the map is part of undoing the sanctity of the map to add things that shouldn't be, you shouldn't see these kinds of stories on a map. These aren't real places. These are experiences and we don't even know if they're true or not. And hopefully part of that gesture, I think also in a visual standpoint, there's this practice that I'm so drawn to, or it's not necessarily a practice, it's an outcome of the amount of stories that are added to querying the map also means that the map begin below that these stories are added to begins to break underneath. You see these gray squares in the places where it has not yet loaded. Sometimes it doesn't load at all. And so there is this practice of breaking the map, revealing the map to be an image that I think is an important gesture in terms of undoing the sanctity or any sort of truth value that the colonial projection, the colonial tool of the God's eye view map is set up to perpetrate. And so I think it's also it's also important to note that in any in any kind of archive, to tell one story, to place one story is also to hmm, I'm not really sure where I'm trying to go with that. I think that it sounds like to add another layer to it, to this place on a map, to add this story at best is only adding another layer. But in the process, are we obscuring or just flat covering or then leading into contributing to erasing? You know what I'm picturing on this global map that you have with querying the map, there are so many experiences that have been marked that North America and Europe are virtually all blacked out by these black markers with so many thousands of experiences. And there are markers all over the world. And in doing that, if what I click on, are there several underneath that that I'm not able to get to? Are we just layering on new? And if mm -hmm. we're doing that, not only with querying the map, but if we take that perspective, if we step back for a minute and think about, well, we're on these lands that were colonialized, that were stolen. Are we only layering a story alongside the previous stories or are we erasing what was there before? And I think we both know how a lot of that history has been written and what that means. You know, what we, mm -hmm. what we've not learned. I don't, I don't know the history of the land where I am very well at all. And I think that that's extremely common for those of us uh, across North America. But I want to, I want to go to this truth that truth is it's important to me. And it's interesting that you and I both favor nonfiction reading. Mm -hmm. I always have. And I think that that is at the heart of it. It's because I wanted to know, even as a kid, that when I was reading a book, I wanted to know that I could believe in what I was being told, that it wasn't just a fabricated story for my entertainment, but rather, why can't I have a story that is compelling, but I can know it's true. I can, I can believe in it. I can look up to that person who accomplished that thing or whatever the case is. And in these stories on querying the map, like you're saying, some of them are fantastical. We can't be sure that all of them are true in the sense of what we call, uh, you know, factually true. But it doesn't mean there's not truth in the fiction of what they're writing, right? What, what truth might they be writing out there, what they want to express, what they wish they could share, the experience they wish they could have, but they're still not quite there yet for whatever reason, right? So that truth in fiction is really compelling to me about this, especially in light of maybe our shared preference for nonfiction. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I am, I am also very attached to, to this idea of truth. And also I love what you're saying about the, uh, the, the aspirational in the archive, the way that we, I mean, even the way that we, that we write, histories that we write the histories of our own experiences as 
we it's always a process of storytelling because we can't recall the exact there you know there is of course there's no 100% historically accurate peer reviewed version of our from the minute to the grand uh, experiences of our emotional selves. So it's always a process of, of storytelling. It's always a, a negotiation between that which is stands in for truth and that which is an interpretation of what has happened in the past that we're recanting in the moment of, of sharing a story about ourselves. Yeah, yeah. It, you, that brings to mind for me the spiritual teacher Deepak Chopra. He describes it as even the, the the tiniest fraction of an instant before or after this moment of now is illusion. It's I think he also uses the word dream. It's only what we now fantastically tell ourselves either has happened or what will happen in terms of, I would say we usually use that as a fear-based or an anxiety-based, this is what I'm afraid is going to happen. But yeah, our stories of ourselves and in that moment, truth is an elusive thing. And it's where I think, you know, it's become more of a common, uh, a phrase of, well, this is my truth, right? And at least that, if nothing else, at least that's recognition that, well, we all have different stories. We all have different versions of this thing of, of myself, of you, of each other, of the world. Absolutely. Speaking of truth, one more question related to that. A little bit ago, you talked about queer experience and experiences that are shared on Queering the Map, for example, as not being believed. I mean, you meant it, in, I think, in the broader general as well, right? Is that queer experience, trans experience, these things that are just not believed, they're not considered valid. And there was something in the way you expressed that that I, I think actually took me aback a bit. It, and I think that the truth of that is, from my, my truth, right, is that I couldn't imagine just dismissing it as untrue. So. What do you mean by that? When those experiences are just invalidated, I, I could speculate as, as to the who and why, but from your perspective, what you're saying, who and why are those experiences considered to not be valid and real? I mean, immediately I, I, I go to that there is even a conversation about whether or not trans women are women, whether or not trans people are, are real um, is the that this that this questions of one's validity as a trans person is something that can even be called in to question is is the thing I think that I'm the most moved by when I when I when I when I talk about that question of of, of queer and trans life being marked in relationship to the inauthentic of having to prove some sort of validity. I mean, another easy example is the the sort of the trope of someone's non-heterosexual identity experience feelings being thought of as a phase, as something that will pass versus the sanctity of, of, of heterosexual relations. Um, so, I mean, there's those, those would be two quick kind of examples of, of, of the ways in which queer and trans people are asked to prove our experiences and often our very existence as something rooted in reality. I mean, the histories of and, and presence in many contexts of, of queer and trans life being written into um, as medical pathology. It, I, in those cases, I guess they are, there's a sense of validity to that, you know, at least someone like wrote it down, but it was, it, it was and continues to be seen as an aberration I want to to go to querying the map with. I, I assume you have shared on it yourself that it at least started that way. Yes, and many times since the initial uh, five first posts. Okay, so what is there? I think you know you've described some of these experiences. I I would think there's catharsis for some. There's relief. There's release. There's a sense of that honesty of feeling like they can share there when maybe they can't in other places, at least not with anonymity, not with all that safety. So I've I've gone to the site several times. I've clicked around the world. I've read some different things. 
some of those things that are, again, aspirational, some of them I'll believe to be they're true, what they mean to be there. This is what happened. This was my experience in this place. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to read one very short one because it is anonymous. So I'm not telling someone's story on them when they intend for this to be anonymous. There's actually no association of a name with it. And it, to me, represents, I, w- I was so glad I clicked on this one out of the tens of tens of thousands, because it's so touching for its humanity and also explaining something that ties to what we were just talking about, about how people are treated in this process for their truth. So here it is. Kissed my girlfriend for the first time and got yelled at by an old homophobe at the bus station. Still a beautiful day. That it ends on that positive feel-good moment as well, not just the reaction of the one person they're calling an old homophobe at that bus station. To me, this reads like a poem. And so I'm thinking that you spend time reading a lot of these frequently, right? As the keeper of this archive, the keeper of this map. And I'm curious what you see in these posts, what you feel in them, what stands out to you, maybe in the collection of them, what is happening? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the impossible, impossible question <laughs> because in the in the zip file of my mind that that hosts and holds everything queering the map, there is this that zip file is corrupt, right? There's so many. I I there's so many stories. There's a hundred and eleven thousand currently, just a little bit over that. And they are all, and I and I've spent so many hours of my of my life uh, reading through them in the process of of moderation because all of the stories are moderated um, before they go live to ensure that no hate spam or unsafe content makes its way onto the public facing map. And so this, I, I find it almost impossible to to answer that kind of question. Of, of like dis- distilling all of these stories into a series. Because for one claim I might make, there are so many stories like this. Immediately, I can think of 10 other stories that contradict that kind of logic, which I think is so fantastic. And I think it's, it's, it's part of the process of building and maintaining a queer archive is that we shouldn't be able to settle on any sort of you know, three quick talking points about what the stories tell us because they tell us so many different things. And every time that someone adds a new story, we learn something different. And so, of course, there, I mean, we might be able to talk about sort of like major, major themes. I mean, one major theme is how many of the stories like the one you just read are stories about relation. It's a, it's a kiss with someone that might have also set up why that day, despite that instance of, of, of homophobia, was still a beautiful day. There's so many stories of this kind of relation to another individual, to community, whether, whether that kind of relation is, is rooted in the affirmative, in this case it is, um, or some other feeling. But the, the answer to that question is almost to look at queering the map, to come to those ideas for oneself, right? To re- It's like each contribution is a narrative arc in and of itself that I don't know if I could, I, I can't actually, I've tried, I've tried very hard and it's part of my sort of like disdain for academia as like a structure. So often I feel like I need to, to sort of answer these calls to make sense of queering the map or the kinds of stories when in actuality, it's a project distinctly set up to resist that kind of that kind of easy read. Even the structure of the of the site that it's so it's cacophonous, it's overwhelming to move through all of these different stories. There's no search bar. Um, you can't query a location, so you have to drag yourself through all of these other stories to get to maybe the place you thought you were going to go, but then you get lost. You think you're going to read this other, this story that's similar because of that story that you just read, but then you read something that like rocks your world in a totally different way than you might have thought based on the other ones that you've clicked around before. 
you come back another time to querying the map and you can never really find those like, I mean, maybe you can in certain contexts, but because there's so many stories, because it's, it's, it's organizational strategy is one of disorder and disarray, you get lost. And I think that's part of the, the, I think it's part of the power and the magic of querying the map is this sense of getting lost, this sense of looking at an archive of rich human experience and knowing that I think whatever sort of, whatever sort of conclusion you might draw that day will, if you go back on another day, based on how you're feeling, based on the subject position from which you are experiencing the world, will come to something different. Well, you now have so many stories, so much content data that is um, part of participating in this map. And so there really is a significant archive. You are the keeper of this archive. And with that, I think probably has come uh, responsibility that I wonder, one, had you ever imagined there would be so much, but now uh, I know that your attention is is focused on this responsibility and how you care for it. So how are you considering this archive? And as I can only imagine, it's going to continue to swell, to grow, and where you take it from here. I think some of that's already underway. So, So what is it that you're doing with this archive moving forward? Um, I mean, many, many different things. I think the starting point is, is simply the work and the care of maintenance of ensuring that the platform can continue to grow is a major part of, um, part of the work that I'm doing right now, developing a, 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 a version two of the platform that can handle the kind of traffic and participation that is currently the case on querying the map. And also thinking very deeply about what my responsibility is as the steward of this data, which has always been a part of the process of making and thinking about the platform, right down to the the way that data, like anonymity is also a, 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 it's a mode of privacy and data protection that in the event that, you know, this, this, Everything that you see on the site is what you would see in the database. There's not connected phone numbers, addresses, right? There's no personally identifying information anywhere. It's not encrypted. It simply does not exist. Um, So that sort of data stewardship and uh, data ethics slash responsibility had been built in from from the beginning, but continuing to really think on like, okay, what are the implications of this, um, of this data? And one of, one of the ways that I'm exploring that largely from an artistic lens, from a fictional lens, a speculative fiction lens, is uh, thinking about what it might mean to train an artificial intelligence on the data of querying the map. So contending and thinking about the amount of bias um, that is in various data sets, that querying the map is a very particular data set because it is written by and for queer people. So what might an artificial intelligence um, that has learned from this immensely emotive and affective and human data set, what might it say about the world? What might it think about the world? Um, and so this is culminating in, in a project called QtBot that I'm currently working on um, that develops these speculative locations and um, stories, narratives that blur the line between the realistic and the absurd that sort of break this singular subject position, um, break time, um, continue a lot of the, a lot of the gestures that brought Queering the Map itself about and pushing them even further and, and really sort of getting at if, if uh, thinking back to what we were talking about before of, of speculating or fabulating playing in the archive as a mode of world building, as a mode of refusing to accept the present and demanding something different in the future, a way of filling in or dancing around gaps in the archive itself, thinking about what role artificial intelligence might have to do that kind of, to do that kind of work, to imagine, to create world situations, experiences, 
that maybe happened in another dimension have not yet happened is one one other permutation of how I'm thinking and working with with querying the map as a larger larger project. Do you see this as an ongoing, developing, evolving work, a body of work, really, that is one of these things that becomes, I mean, can you imagine in 10, 20, 50 years from now, looking back and that this, what we're talking about is still in the infancy then from that far out of this incredible body of work that has this significant place in the world and... I mean, do you, have you stepped back to think of it in those kinds of terms, that, that kind of scale and longevity purpose? To a certain extent, yes, because I think, and I'm so moved by the impact that Queering the Map has had on so many people that, that I, you know, that I can intuit through the fact that people are participating in it that people are sharing on it and sharing in ways that are so immensely powerful, as well as through when I receive emails from people explicitly stating, thank you for making this project. This is really important to me. Some, I mean, I often, so it's like, then I'm reminded and reminded largely of, of my responsibility to, to maintain this kind of work, because I think largely about like a younger, it had a younger version of myself come across this project when I was, younger and, 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 and coming into myself and learning about myself and learning about the kinds of communities that, that I would one day be a part of. I know that querying the map would have been immensely powerful for me as a young queer and, and trans person. And so I feel that kind of responsibility to, to see it into the future, to do the work of care, of maintenance as a form of care, uh, to enable that possibility. But in 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 many and that those kinds of feelings are are they emerge occasionally. I often need to be like reminded of that, and like when I will receive kind words about querying the map, I am reminded of of that. But most of the time, it is I'm so in it, and I'm like steering and being in relation to it in such a sense of of immediacy that sometimes thinking about the future is very much out of grasp it's very much like okay how do i get this thing to like to continue doing what it's doing and then what are the other kinds of things that might come out of this work one thing is thinking about how to extend the platform to uh, i actually i don't know if i can talk about this so i might not be able to talk about it but I'll say it just to get it out of the way, but I don't, I, I'm making, I'm starting a podcast. Um, I've signed a, a development deal to start a podcast about querying the map, which I feel like is like, I really like the biggest sort of thing that I would love to talk about, but I don't actually think that I'm allowed to talk about it until they have like officially <laughs> <laughs> announced it. That sounds great. That sounds great. So, so you've taken that far enough and I'm, I'm happy to hear that because it hadn't occurred to me. And now that you say it, I'm like, of course, that has so much tremendous opportunity and potential. And that's huge. That's awesome. I look forward to, to seeing, hearing later how that comes mm-hmm. together. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely send you a link when I'm, uh, when I'm legally allowed to, to talk about it or, and I mean, once it, once it exists. That's wonderful. I mean, I truthfully, I don't know very much about podcasts. I'll be learning as I go. And I'm working with these, these other really amazing producers. So I don't know how long it will, it will take, but I imagine sort of like within a year it will have launched. That is a great segue for a question that you had already given me here, which is talking about, um, learning as you go. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I do that with, with this podcast, actually. I mean, there's been some, this is evolution from previous skills. I'd mentioned the writing, the photography and interviewing and those things. Okay. This is the next step in that for me personally. But the question that you had already kind of put into my mind is that when you started querying the map and where this has gone for the past few years and where it's going. And I was just wondering if you ever get that sense like I sometimes do with things, like I think a lot of people do that are creating things in the world where you just think, I don't know what I'm doing. What am I doing? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. 
<laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that that's definitely a a primary feeling that I have, especially because I recognize how young I am. I was 21 when I started Queering the Map. I'm now 24. Queering the Map is the second website that I ever made. So I was just learning how to code when I made Queering the Map. I was just, so it is every, and every sort of like new thing that I'm doing, I always feel like I'm I'm uh, catching up. And especially in the case of Queering the Map, I feel like Queering the Map is leading me and I'm simply running behind them, just trying to make sure that like, they have their lunchbox for the day and like everything, they're drinking enough water. But yes, I very much, I very much feel like I'm figuring out so much as I go while also being, being kind to myself and, and, and acknowledging the capacities that I do have and feeling rooted in those while still being very aware of how much I will be able to learn. In, in my life and, and, and that to be led by something um, like Queering the Map, I think is an enormous gift because it's being led always in relation to others. It's a, it's, it's taking care of Queering the Map as an act of care that is an act of care for myself, absolutely. Because it's, it's, it's a resource in my own life that is gratifying and moves me immensely but also knowing that it is also an act of doing something for others, for everyone that has and might and will participate in Queering the Map is something that I'm so grateful for because it gives me such an immense sense of purpose when I sometimes wonder like, what on earth am I doing with my life? So I'm very grateful for the entity of Queering the Map and the relationship that I have to to the project as absolutely the person that set it into motion and also it's like it's friend you know it's uh it's life partner very likely this brings us to the last question that i'm going to ask you today lucas and like i say with every episode it's a version of the question that i ask every guest which is also a version of the question i ask every listener i ask every listener how do you live humanness and creativity in your life We've just spent this hour plus talking about these immensely human uh, aspects of, of how you are showing up in the world. So I'm going to ask you the question this way today. What is most meaningful to you about you and about how you view the world and engage with it? You mentioned the word values before. What are the values that matter that make you excited to get up and, and show up in the way that you do? What's important about it right now? The thing that comes to my mind first is I am the relationships that I have. I am the relationships that I have to, especially my friends that are so immensely dear to me. And and being caring of and loving of my friends and my, my wider community is the thing... I, it's the thing that gets me up in the morning. And it's also, it's not saying it that way. It's almost, I, I feel like it's sort of like, it's a weird way of answering the question. Like what is, what is valuable or what is like good about you? And then to answer that, oh, it's my relationships. But I, I, that is what, that is what comes to me first because I am my relationships. I am an amalgamation of every person that has ever moved me in some capacity and to have the unbelievable, brilliant friendships that I have um, that support me as simply me just existing in the world, that support me in the kinds of thoughts that I'm able to have, um, the way in which I'm support my, able to support my friends in, in, in a similar capacity is really the thing. I mean, it's the thing that I'm the most excited about in the world. And it's my capacity, I guess, for care in that regard and love and admiration of my friends and and I would also say wider community that is what I value the most about myself. Lucas, thank you for all your time and for sharing and for the work that you do. Thank you. It was such a joy to talk to you today. 
That was designer, artist, and founder of Querying the Map, Lucas La Rochelle, in today's Humanity Conversation of Humanness and Creativity. You can learn more about Lucas in the show notes published on our website at humanity.com. To keep the good going, follow Humanity on your podcast player or subscribe to the Humanity newsletter via the website. We're regularly adding conversations like this one, full of authenticity, humanity, and heart. I also encourage you to post ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else you can, and to share the Humanity podcast on your social media pages. On Instagram, you can follow and tag us, at Humanitou. To contribute financial support, even just $1, to give a buck for Humanitou, go to the website, again, that's Humanitou.com, and you'll see the support link in the navigation menu on the homepage. Together, we can cultivate a more thoughtful, kind, and creative world. And now, the question that I ask you at the end of each episode, how are you living humanness and creativity in your life? I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of this Humanity Podcast. Thanks for being here. <laughs>